I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in the series, Uncompromising Orthodoxy. All the right doctrine in the world will not, by default, generate real intimacy with God, the kind of closeness that creates change. So what does? Imagine someone dedicated to sound doctrine. Maybe you've known someone like this, a person who across, let's say, many years of their alleged Christianity demonstrated ruthless, protective commitment to good theology, someone who could conjure up Bible verses for any occasion, who quoted church fathers and theologians with effortless efficiency. Imagine a person who pushed back against heresy, false teaching, against the pervasive and inevitable cultural meddling with orthodoxy, a person so faithfully committed to right belief that they would not be taken in by external pressure to compromise the truth, and who, for much of their lives, felt alienated from the presence of God, who felt little to no intimacy with the Father, who For all their courageous fidelity to orthodoxy, who memorized stories of Jesus' signs and wonders, saw no signs nor wonders in their own life at all. There are four first century biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 20. That was my way of checking to see if you guys were awake. Thank you. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic gospels, which comes from the Greek word synoptikos, where we get the English word synopsis, because uh, the first four gospels cover much of the same basic territory. The theory is actually that Mark wrote his gospel first, and that Matthew and Luke both used his writing and possibly another written collection of Jesus' sayings called the Q document, not to be confused with the modern satanic political cult also called But the point is, if you've ever read through the Gospels, then you probably notice that the first three, they have unique aesthetics and their own kind of literary voice, um, their own stylistic approaches, but they cover a lot of the same basic ground. They have a lot of the same scenes, some of them word for word. And then you get to John, which is the weirdo Gospel. See, wow, fans of John. Yeah, John. Matthew starts his off with a genealogy. This guy had this, the, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and on and on it goes. Mark and Luke, they start theirs in kind of the historical swing of the narrative, uh, really earthy with John the Baptist, one of them telling the story of how John the Baptist was conceived and born. The other right in, you know, he's in the desert, he came proclaiming the way for the Messiah. But John's gospel begins like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Awesome. And that word overcome is a katalambano in Greek. It can be used to describe taking hold of something, either to overcome it or just to take hold of it, to grasp it intellectually or understand it. So many of your Bibles actually have a footnote there explaining that that verse 5 can also be translated, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. 
which I only point out because it makes the entire passage, I think, even more strange and haunting and beautiful. To be sure, all the Gospels deal with profound cosmic realities. They are not confined to the material world or to the ordinary or that which can be seen only. But while the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go from earth up, so to speak, John frames his Gospel from the outset heaven down. He begins not with the genealogy or the prophet in the desert, but with, in the beginning was the Word. It's not from earth up, it's from heaven down. And I say all this to set up John chapter 20. In it, Jesus has been executed and then raised from the dead, and we find Jesus' friends and apprentices all in hiding. They're scared, they're alone, they're alone in a room with the doors locked. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence as we read um, from the inspired and authoritative scriptures? Let's read John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, He breathed on them and said, read this line with me, receive the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and take a seat. These words are inspired by God. Now notice that line in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's huge. This is the official passing on of Jesus' mantle to his apprentices. My job, Jesus is saying, is now your job. And that is the third and final step of apprenticeship. Apprenticeship to Jesus begins with, first, be with Jesus. Second, become like Him. And third, learn to do what Jesus did. And this has been at the heart of the last few weeks' teaching on doctrine and orthodoxy. What you believe, what you really believe anyway, informs what you do. Belief becomes action. Orthodoxy should always become orthopraxy, meaning right belief should always become right practice. So here in John 20, Jesus has been with his students. He's taught them everything, the truth about himself, about God, the world, what it means to be a human being. And then Jesus is telling his apprentices plainly, the things that I was sent by God to do, I am now sending you to do. And lo and behold, more than two millennia later, here we are, the church. And this is why we have missionaries, why disciples of Jesus do justice, why there are Jesus causes and nonprofits and folks who pray for other people and start churches and all that. And if you've been around the church for more than a second, this probably comes as a little surprise. Yes, even if you're bad at it, most of us understand that Jesus does call his followers to a way of life. So that line, as the Father sent me, I am now sending you, it's, it's not exactly a little known saying of Jesus. Even if we struggle to embrace it, We get the idea, at least intellectually. But why, I wonder, do we struggle to embrace it? And that question comes into focus when we read Jesus' commission to his disciples, including what precedes and follows it. Now notice in verse 21, Jesus first says, peace be with you, or in Hebrew, shalom, which is more than just, hey guys, it is a greeting, but it's more than that. This is Jesus' pronouncement of peace and flourishing and goodness of spiritual maturity, emotional health of God's desire for life to the fullest over his disciples. And then Jesus says, as the Father sent me. 
But what comes after that is crucial. Verse 22, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Notice Jesus doesn't say, okay, so that's about it. I taught you everything. You guys know this stuff. Now get out there and do your best. He pronounces God's peace and goodness over them, and before they go, he gives them the Holy Spirit, which is the power of God himself to do what Jesus did in the first place. Thing is, without God's peace and goodness and without God's empowering presence or the Spirit of God, you can still get out there and you can attempt to do the things that Jesus did, and you can do some good stuff. But something will inevitably fall short. You can have all the right doctrine. You can know a metric butt-ton about the Bible. You can have the very best, most sophisticated theological system. You can quote scholars and theologians, and you can refute heresy with airtight efficiency. And you can do all that without being much like Jesus at all. In fact, my guess is that most of the people in this room have known or maybe even have been Someone who has been a Christian for a long time, knows a lot about the Bible, is active in the church, but isn't much like Jesus at all. Or someone with all the right belief that has yet to experience significant life-changing intimacy with the living God, who for them, God amounts to little more than texts and doctrines and intellectual belief. Why? If you're new to Van City, our church is very much organized around this idea of apprenticing Jesus, of discipleship. So we study the scriptures, we get together in smaller groups called Van City Communities. We actually practice doing spiritual disciplines like prayer and silence and solitude and fasting. We take on principles of emotional health and spiritual maturity, like dealing with your past and discovering your identity and calling. But these things are all, we believe, contingent on God's help. And that's good news, not bad news. Our effort matters, but God does the heavy lifting. So for as long as we have been up to all that stuff, which is almost six years now, we've also set out to make room for all the stuff that God's Spirit does, both here in the gathering and in theory in your Van City communities. So things like prophecy, words of wisdom and knowledge, listening prayer, imaginative prayer, healing, all that stuff. It's probably obvious after spending the last few weeks in a series all about doctrine and orthodoxy that we do truly believe that doctrine, theology, study, academia, all of that stuff truly matters. Again, belief informs action, but all the right belief in the world alone will not form you into the image of Jesus. What does? So bookmark John and then turn to the left in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. The entire story of the Bible begins this way. Genesis chapter 1, uh, it's at the very beginning if you're new to the Bible. This is the first thing we read at the open, the outset of the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And listen, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That word spirit here is ruach in Hebrew, and it can be also translated as breath or wind. In Hebrew, this is a word picture of the Spirit of God as a bird, actually, flapping its wings, so to speak, over the waters. And this is fascinating because as the story carries on, 
Water becomes the predominant metaphor employed by the biblical authors to describe none other than the Holy Spirit himself. So bear with me. I'm going to have you guys flipping around in your Bibles for a bit. You'll be fine. Now turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 44. If you're new to the Bible, feel free to consult the table of contents. Isaiah chapter 44. And you'll notice that's kind of a big jump from Genesis 1 to Isaiah 44. Um, And that's because, honestly, the Spirit of God is in sentence number two of the Bible. That's what we just read from Genesis. But then he takes on more of a subtle role until we arrive at the prophets. In that space between, the Spirit is in the Scriptures, for sure, in the the meta-narrative of the Bible story, but not prominently. And that's actually important. That's an important, deliberate piece of the Bible's meta-narrative. So the Spirit shows up, He empowers a prophet or a priest or a king at certain key junctures in Israel's story, but then retreats once again into the background, shrouded in mystery, somewhat inaccessible. And this is, from the outset, a frustrating thing for the people in the story. In Numbers 11, for example, Moses articulates that frustration by saying, I wish that all Yahweh's people were prophets and that Yahweh would put his spirit on them because the spirit was isolated to a certain person one at a time and only for a moment and then gone again. And it was frustrating. And then later the prophets, amongst whom Isaiah is the first, begin to look to the future's horizon and they foretell of a day on which the Holy Spirit would step out of the background, out of the mystery, into the light once and for all. And when that day would finally come, they foresaw an entirely new reality for all of humanity, not just Israel. So look at Isaiah 44, verse 1. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what Yahweh says, He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you, Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. So Isaiah, the prophet, is looking to a day in the future when God's spirit would be like water poured out over a thirsty desert, and that desert would be forever changed as a result. And this idea of the spirit as water permeates Isaiah's writing, and he's not the only one. Turn a bit to the right to the book of Joel. It goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and Joel, so just a few books to the right. If you hit Amos, you've gone too far. Joel chapter 2, skip down to verse 28, and we read this, and afterward, so again, this is a prophetic vision of the future, afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Again, with the water. Worship rituals involving water were common in the ancient Near East for both Hebrews and pagans. Water would be poured out on an altar, so that's the imagery here, and the text goes on. I will pour out my spirit on all people, Your sons and daughters will prophesy, which means speak the words of God. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. These passages from Isaiah, from Joel, are only two amongst many that looked forward to a day in the future in which God's spirit would be poured out like water in the desert, answering a prayer long prayed by the people of God for centuries. And all that eventually takes us, as all stories in the Bible do, to Jesus. So now, turn back over to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. 
John chapter 1. And when you get down, and when you get there, let's skip down to verse 32. Here's a story about John the Baptist. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Jesus. Now, this is really fascinating. John is actually retelling the story of Jesus' baptism. And in it, the Spirit comes down like a dove, not a literal dove, but like a dove. But why? We think that this imagery was actually inspired by an Aramaic targum, which was a translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Aramaic. Bear with me for just a second. This is actually interesting, believe it or not. In the first century, most of Jesus' Hebrew peers spoke Aramaic rather than Hebrew. So naturally, they needed translations of the Hebrew Scriptures. So same as you and me. We need uh, Hebrew translated to English, Greek translated to English so we can read it, the NIV or whatever it is that you're reading right now. And many first century Jews needed Hebrew translated to Aramaic. So they used something called Targums. That was their translation. One of the most popular Aramaic Targums of Jesus' day translated the second line of Genesis 1, the one that we read a bit earlier, the Spirit of God like a dove, translated it like this. The Spirit flapped its wings over the water like a dove. And this would have been a well-known way of reading that text in Jesus' day. And it seems to scholars that this is John's way, the author of this gospel's way of saying that in the same way that God's Spirit was over the waters in creation, He's now over Jesus who is nothing short of a new creation, meaning the world is now being recreated in and through Jesus of Nazareth. And John goes on, verse 33, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with what? The Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one, Messiah, anointed one. Now that word baptize is baptizo in Greek and it means exactly what you think it means to immerse beneath water, drench, saturate, meaning John is saying that when Jesus comes, he will be the one to immerse his followers in the water that is the Holy Spirit. And John isn't finished with the Spirit as water imagery. Turn over to chapter 4, John chapter 4. And read along beginning with verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me For a drink, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Interestingly, neither Jesus nor John, the biography's author, detail what exactly, at least not here, this living water is. But then something changes. Turn over one more time. We're almost done with the flipping. You'll be all right. 
One more time, John chapter 7. Now, this last one comes with a bit of backstory. Hear me out. We're, we're going somewhere with all this. The context here is that Jesus is in Jerusalem for something called the Feast of Tabernacles, one amongst uh, three famous Jewish feasts. This one in particular was a time for Israel to look back and remember the part of the story from Exodus when, in Israel's history, Jews lived in tents or tabernacles in the desert. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jews would flock to Jerusalem, and they kind of camped out for a week living in tents. And it was about more than just remembering and enacting that part of God's story, but also about looking to the future for a time when God would lead Israel in a second exodus, beginning something new and profound in the world. And on the final day of the seven-day Feast of Tabernacles, everyone, thousands and thousands of people, would crowd into the city, and the high priest would begin a long walk setting out from the Pool of Siloam at the bottom of the city, and he would take a bucket made out of gold, dip it in the water, carry this bucket up the hill uh, of Jerusalem, and with thousands of people on his right and his left as he passed through, all of them singing Isaiah 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So this huge, symbolic, beautiful ceremony. And then this huge, symbolic, beautiful ceremony culminated in the priest's arrival at the Temple Mount. And before all the people of God, the high priest would enter the temple, pour the bucket of gold and water out over the altar as a reverent hush fell over the crowd. All of this we know from rabbinic writings as a symbolic gesture of a joyful anticipation for what Isaiah and Joel promised would finally happen one day when God's Spirit would be poured out like water and entire people watching and waiting and hoping for that day to finally arrive. Now, all of that is the background to John chapter 7. Now, let's read beginning with verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival. So this is during the huge profound moment of observance and anticipation for Israel. This is the big culmination of the entire ceremony. Jesus stood and in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. What a strange thing to say. What was that strange living water Jesus mentioned? The water that the woman at the well could not fully comprehend at that time that John didn't name earlier in the gospel. The water was the Holy Spirit. Now, remember... These stories unfolded in the ancient Near East. Metaphors of Isaiah are set there. The whole idea of a dry, hot world where prophets look to a future work of God, the arrival of God's Spirit, and they liken it to rivers of living water flowing through a once dry, desolate landscape so that trees and lust vegetation erupt from the cracked, sandy earth in a world where thirsty people shuffle to local wells day in and day out to temporarily relieve their ongoing thirst, if not for a moment, Jesus says, listen, I will give you living water that will satisfy like no well ever can. Come and drink. Thing is, how many of us feel as though what Jesus said is actually true? Let's say you're an old hand at this. You come to church, you pray, you read, you show up to community. But if you were to answer honestly, 
Would you say that you are satisfied or that you are still thirsty? Or maybe you're new to the game, new to Jesus, new to church, but you're here, you're in. Maybe you wonder if you somehow missed the part where you actually get the living water. Some of you, I happen to know, are full-on discontented and searching, but others, I also know, feel a bit less cynical, as it were, and more just thirsty. Sometimes you wonder, is there more? Heck, Jesus said, you will never be thirsty again. Really? This is why we romanticize certain seasons of church history, why we read the book of Acts and say, wow, now they were on to something. That sounds beautiful. Why we read about movements and revivals and noteworthy men and women, and we assume that they had something that we don't, and that it was for them and not us, and we can't help but feel as though something is missing in the mundanity of our everyday lives. We are still thirsty. Some of you want to do something. You want to make something. You want to go somewhere. You want to change something. You want to belong to something big. Others of you don't necessarily crave some new movement or mission. You don't need something that the world deems incredible, nothing grandiose, but you do want the full, uninhibited closeness to God in the routine normalcy of your life. Some of you, I think, want intimacy and satisfaction and peace while you chase toddlers or wash dishes or commute or do your nine to five. Or maybe what you want and what you've been waiting for is breakthrough in your own life. You want to change. You want freedom. You want healing. You want God's closeness over you and in the day-to-day moments of your lives, not just for you, but for your kids, your friends, your spouse, your family, your community. Billy Graham, one of American Christianity's most noteworthy figures, traveled the country and the world on mission for decades before he finally said this, everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They're hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not all that they expected, and they often have recurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you've gone through our basics class, you've heard us describe our place in this frustrating dichotomy between two types of churches in the West. And this isn't necessarily of churches, true of churches around the world. Here in the U.S., you will often find a stark contrast between two types of churches. You have the Bible churches and the Holy Spirit churches. In the Bible church, the focus is obvious enough, the Bible, which is in essence a great idea. But it has sadly produced entire movements of what we now call biblical idolatry or fundamentalism, where the Trinity itself gets revised into Father, Son, and Holy Bible. In Holy Spirit churches, on the other hand, the Bible is more often like a collection of fortune cookie platitudes to power shallow pep talks, out of context, underdeveloped, theologically bankrupt, but charismatic and expressive and impassioned with flags and ribbons and dancing and every song is for some reason 10 minutes long and they're just loving it. Now, obviously I'm offering a, you know, hyperbolic reduction of both extremes. There are honestly good and bad aspects of both types of churches. The problem is, of course, that these two dimensions of church, the Bible and the Holy Spirit, were never meant to be separated The community of Jesus, the family of God, is a place of thinking and feeling, a place for theology and academia and the scriptures, and 
a place for singing and dancing, a place for study, and a place for signs and wonders. The church should be a place where Paul's letters are poured over and unpacked and wrestled with in the same couple of hours filled with prophecy and healing and miracles. Now, Van City has by no means cracked this paradigm or anything like that, but this is what we want. This is what we are after. I honestly don't and have never to date dreamed about, you know, having thousands of butts in seats or a multi-million dollar budget or a huge pay raise or our own big building, maybe because they seem so far-fetched. But I don't have any unrealistic expectations about us achieving moral perfection and getting our act together across the board or even avoiding the ordinary pitfalls of life and community and what it means to have a church. But I have dreamed even before our first Sunday and to this very day of seeing this place filled with people uninhibited in worship, passionate, singing and dancing, of Bibles and notebooks open, studying, awake, focused, hungry for knowledge and theology, of uncompromising faithfulness to orthodoxy, even in the face of ridicule and scorn from society and culture, of people praying and prophesying prophesying over one another every single week, the sick being healed, breakthrough, forgiveness, restoration, a place of disciplined self-denial, practice, the hard work of the mind and the will, but enabled by the Spirit of God, a place where distraction and stiffness and rigidity and laziness dissolve before the palpable presence of God, and the veil between heaven and earth gets thin, and we drink to our fill, and we are no longer thirsty. And, quite honestly, I want it to freak us out. I want us to change together as a family, to grow and mature as disciples of Jesus, And then, in the quiet normalcy of ordinary life, week after week, we continue together, learning, growing, faithful and uncompromising when signs and wonders abound and when life is quiet or difficult or painful. I don't expect a church of experts or moral perfectionists or for everyone to have it all figured out But I have pleaded with God for baseline faithfulness, a church ready to give it a shot together, to show up, present, participating, expecting that the Spirit of God is here. There should be something here, something undeniable and attractive even, something powerful, but also strange and incredible and unpredictable because we do not control it. It is God's spirit. And that's usually how this conversation goes. It finds one of two types of people. And there's a spectrum, obviously. But some of you have had bad histories with one of those two types of churches. Maybe you were once immersed in a hyper-charismatic tradition and you saw abuse and phoniness and empty theatrics. And for you, actually studying the Bible, thinking theology is like a breath of fresh air for your soul. Good. We will never, ever give up on that. Or maybe your background was dry and heady and you grew up around panicked questions like, but do they teach the Bible? And dogmatic declarations like, the Word says. And you're tired of doctrine with no intimacy and you are thirsty. Good. We want all the things that the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit was, in the world of my upbringing, just someone that we named in the doxology 
which is something that we sang at you know, a certain point in the Southern Baptist service. And there, he wasn't the Holy Spirit. He was the Holy Ghost, which was spooky. <laughs> and when I started to take all of this very seriously, it was actually theology and the scriptures that first sparked my you know, true romance with the way of Jesus. And now I study and teach the Bible as a job, I, and I still honestly love doing it. But interestingly, I've realized that 10 or so years ago, the rhythms of my apprenticeship were very different. My morning times with God um, a few short years ago were about academic volumes and scripture memorization and long bouts of structured prayer disciplines with order and you know, organization. Today, I'm still into all those things. Those things are wonderful. There's a time and place in every season and every stage of discipleship for those things. And I still wake up every single morning to read the scriptures and to pray, but now my morning times are more about quiet, listening, waiting, deep breaths, contemplation, imagination, intimacy, and I've realized that we need both. Man City has absolutely no ambition to back down from studying and teaching the Bible to the delight of some and the chagrin of others, I'm sure. And there will always be a huge aspect of what we do dedicated to just unpacking these amazing, inspired, authoritative texts one line at a time. And for God's sake, it took us, what, five years to get through Matthew or something like that? But we don't want to study the Bible only. We want an overwhelming outpouring of God's Spirit made manifest in signs and wonders and prophecy, emboldened, uninhibited worship and prayer. I want my kids to grow up in a community that, where they will come and expect that God will speak to people, where they will take it for granted that God heals people. And when they come to church, there will be celebration and wild singing and dancing and empowerment by the Spirit of God into people who are sad and lonely or sick or afraid and who are at the top of the mountain all coming together to rejoice and mourn, and it will freak them out and they will love it. A couple of years ago, I started a tradition with my son, Beck. So on his birthday, I invite a few men that he knows and respects, um, that he asks for, and they gather around him and they speak blessing over him. And they affirm and celebrate him one at a time. I see this in you. I love this about you. And before the day comes, I'll reach out to these guys and I'll say, hey, his birthday's coming. Are you, you know, down to be here and to pray over him, to encourage and, and bless him? And then I ask them specifically, if they can, to come with a word, a prophecy, an encouragement from the Spirit of God over my son. You should see it. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. It's incredible to see these men that he loves and he looks up to, and they sit in a circle around him and they say, I asked Jesus what he wanted me to tell you, and he said this about you. And he sits up straight and he smiles and his chest puffs out, and you can see this like confidence move through him like I am known and I am loved by the people that I respect most in the world and by the God of the universe. He doesn't doubt it for a second when Tab says, God says this about you. It's like he'll tell me later, can you believe that God said that about me? Yes, I do. God speaks to his people. And I want my kids, all three of my kids to grow up expecting to hear on a regular basis. I feel like God's spirit has this to say to you not just on their birthdays, at church on Sunday, at Van City Kids, in their communities throughout the week. I was praying for you this week, and I heard this. I want our children to learn the scriptures. Absolutely. That's what I spend all my time doing, reading and studying Bible and theology. And they are, by God's grace and by the selfless generosity of those who serve with Van City Kids. This could be you, by the way. Please <laughs> sign up. 
They are. They're learning the scriptures. They come home. They tell me stories from the Bible. It's incredible. But I want them to also grow and come here to do more than just study the scriptures. They will come to encounter the living God. In the text that we read, yes, in long seasons of line-by-line studying, yes, but by the Spirit also, alive and well in you and me and among us. With respect, I don't want to show up week in and week out just to teach Bible and theology, sing a few songs, and call it a night. I honestly like those things. I enjoy them, but I, quite frankly, want more. I am thirsty, and I want God's Spirit over our church. And so we arrive at the well. I want encounters, experiences with the Spirit of God. Maybe you've heard people in church circles beat up on experiences, at least I have. I find it absurd, personally. People will pick on things like dimmed lights and soft music playing as people pray, or, or you know, the way that we decorate aesthetics, projections, decor, whatever. And they'll say things like, oh, man, this is disingenuous. It seems like you're trying to create an emotional experience, to which I have always uniformly and without hesitation replied, we are. We absolutely are trying to create an emotional experience. I mean, it's not all we're doing, but who do you think designed you to have emotions in the first place? Read the scriptures. God is, believe me, much more so than we are, obsessively detailed in his demand, his commanding of profound aesthetic ambiance and excellency and art, visual, sound, mood, the tabernacle, the temple. They go way further than we do. It's all there. In his book about the Holy Spirit, Simon Ponsonby writes this, I purposefully emphasize the word experience and will seek to show from Scripture the importance of experience. A non-experiential religion is suspect, for it fails to deal with the totality of our being. Yes, I want doctrine and theology and disciplined faithfulness. That should be obvious by now. I'm on about it all the time. But I absolutely want to experience God, with my heart and soul, my mind and my emotions, my feeling, how many healthy relationships do you have that are void of emotion? And make no mistake, this is about a relationship. Look at this from John 16. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he The spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Now there is obviously a ton here, but I just want to show you this one thing before we end. Notice that when Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit... He describes the Spirit as He, not it. And now why that matters is not because the Holy Spirit is male per se, but because this demonstrates that Jesus understood the Spirit as not as an it, but as a person. 
not a human, but a person. Paul would go on to write about the Holy Spirit as someone who experiences emotions. Paul said that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. All that to say, he is not an intangible, impersonal force. He feels. Paul writes, keep in step with the Spirit, meaning the Spirit has a will. He's going somewhere. The same cannot be said of an abstract concept. The Spirit is alive, moving. We go with Him. We keep in step. And yet many of us either knowingly or subconsciously think of the Spirit as if He is not a He at all, but more like, you know, the nothing in the never-ending story or like the Force in Star Wars, or an impersonal, abstract thing. But that is not the way that Jesus or the authors of the Bible understand the Holy Spirit. And the difference is huge because you cannot experience a personal and intimate relationship with an abstract, impersonal thing but you can know a person. So when I talk about wanting more of the Holy Spirit, I mean it in the same way that I want more of my kids or my wife or my closest friends. I want more relationship. I want to know them better, more intimacy, more connection. And since so much of our language around the Spirit is complicated or metaphorical or anthropomorphic, we inadvertently slip into all sorts of misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit. For example, if you've been to Van City more than once, then you've probably heard us say something like, Holy Spirit, come join us or Holy Spirit come speak, or Holy Spirit come in general, which is, granted, a funny way to talk about something that is someone that is omnipresent, and for disciples of Jesus, indwelling in us already, but it's not a funny way to talk about someone with whom we are in relationship. When we invite God's Spirit to speak, we're not negating that He's in us or that He's everywhere already. We're acknowledging that He's a person, not a thing, and we want to know Him better. For those of you who have had a close friend for more than a decade or someone, you've, you've, maybe you've been happily married for a long time or longer, you know that though someone might be your friend or your husband or, or your wife on day one and then year 10 and then year 20, you can absolutely have and know more or less about them at any given point in your relationship. And we are saying that we want more of the Spirit which is why the invitation of Jesus still stands. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Again, when you want more of someone, it doesn't just happen for your wanting it. If I realize, for example, that my wife Abby and I have drifted in our closeness, or if it's just that we got too busy and we're distracted and time flies by with no real connection or togetherness or quality time, then I will tell her, I miss you. Let's make time to talk and spend uh, personal quality time together. This week, I want to hear from you, to talk to you, to be close to you. Let's do it on these nights, these days, all that stuff. More, maybe for some of you, you've yet to experience what you would describe as real intimacy with the Holy Spirit. And that, that too only changes when we enact measures to change it. Most of us, if we follow Jesus, we believe, intellectually at least, in the idea of the Holy Spirit, but if, there's yet to, if you have yet to experience any real intimacy, or if there has been a lapse in your connectedness to God the Father by His Spirit, remember that invitation of Jesus. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. That's the qualification. Not let anyone who has their act together, not let anyone who is mature in their discipleship, anyone who is thirsty, anyone who wants more of the Spirit, come and get it. And so we arrive at the well. Let us come before Him and say, 
I am thirsty. And let's drink. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.